Our thanks to everyone that led in our worship this morning. It's always good to have folks that have talent to lead us in worship. Our congratulations to, <laughs> to Avery and Maya in their wedding last Sunday afternoon. So we welcome you this morning as Mr. and Mrs. Avery and Maya King. Is that correct? Yeah? Congratulations to you. Good to have you in the Lord's house this morning. So congratulate them this morning, if you would. And uh, it's been our pleasure to know you for a number of months now. So for those perhaps that are listening and watching via the Internet, along with our congregation, we've been looking at 1 Peter chapter 3. So turn with me there to 1 Peter chapter 3. And again, I would remind you of this. If you don't have a Bible, this, it's always important to follow along in the Scripture. But it's uh, because this is a difficult passage, uh, it's uh, probably even more important at, at this particular point in time. So we started uh, a week or so ago looking at Christ's victorious suffering, and that's what the focus is in the latter part of chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. A couple of themes here that Peter uh, repeats uh, perhaps more than any uh, author in the New Testament. One is angels, and we will look again at, uh, at holy and fallen angels this morning. Um, we did take time a few months ago to look at uh, holy angels in detail, and when we get to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, we'll spend a little more time on, on fallen angels, but that's one of the themes here, and he mentions it quite often. The second one is the word conscience, and we find that in, uh, in verse 16, having a good conscience, uh, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ might be ashamed. It's also found uh, in uh, verse 21. Uh, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. So this, and it's mentioned a number of times, five or six times in First Peter. So this is a theme that, uh, these two themes rather are, are in the consciousness of Peter as he's writing. And as we focus on this particular passage, it's good to get our Minds and gear. As I said last Sunday, we need to buckle your seat belts because this passage has a, a lot of background and a lot of detail to it. In verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is an also, also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities, and powers having been made subject to him, and then let's look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself with the same mind. Arm yourself with his consciousness. 
For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So let's go to the Lord, his throne of grace, in prayer. Father, we <clears throat> thank you for the grace and for this safe place this morning for believers. And Father, it's also a safe place for unbelievers in the, in the fact that they were presented with the gospel. We talked and we closed out last Sunday morning preaching about having a second, third, fourth, uh, and it, almost an innumerable chance to hear the gospel in this country. And yet, many still refuse to believe that today is the day of salvation. And so remind us yet again that Christ died once for sin, and that many women will die once, and after that the judgment. There is no second chance after this life. Teach us that truth this morning as we continue in this passage, illuminate our hearts about uh, verses 19, and then as we also start to look at baptism, remind us that there is no regeneration in baptism. It is, as Peter said, an antitype. And so open our hearts and minds to what we read this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First slide, if you would, uh, Brother Jeff. So again, I, this is, <clears throat> I think, the third Sunday. It's, this passage is certainly the most difficult in the epistles of First and Second Peter. Uh, and also, in some commentaries, it's considered to be the most difficult in the New Testament. Now, we were in, uh, Josh taught our combined Sunday school classes this morning and teaching from the book of Revelation. And a lot of people say, well, the book of Revelation is the most difficult, but no, it's not. It's not. A lot of imagery but it's not the most difficult book. And this passage helps to frame what he read in Revelation chapter 5, which, time permitting, we'll go and look at it later on this morning. So we need to read the uh, Scripture, always read the Scripture in context, because we are guilty of lifting it out of context, making it say what makes us feel better, rather than what the Scripture actually says. So I've reminded you that when we expose the scripture, the task is clear. If we cannot align the depths of these mysteries, and indeed there are quite a few mysteries in these verses, if we can't align them with all of scripture, then we have two actions, and that is we are to state the primary points as clear as we can. And number two, we're, we are to avoid major error without building a novel doctrine on obscure passages. Now, I would remind you of this. There are three heresies that are often taken from these four or five verses. We've talked about two of them. This morning we'll perhaps get to the third one. If not, we'll do it next Sunday morning. Martin Luther who I mentioned last Sunday morning is no stranger to opinions. He was a very opinionated man, but he needed to be. It's always good when you can back up your opinions with Scripture, which is not opinionated. Uh, he was a renowned Greek scholar, translated the New Testament, in fact, translated the entire Bible, Hebrew and Greek, into German. 
And in reading this passage, you said, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure pa pa uh, passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. If you know anything about, about Luther, he did not lack for certainty. But here he says, uh, I'm not exactly sure what Peter is saying. And that's okay. If we don't know, we should say we don't know. So in this passage, we have already covered verse 18, the reality of a risen Savior. Started last Sunday morning looking at the example of a ridiculed Noah. And then we'll close out this passage in verse 22, the reign of the risen Christ. Now, the primary point, state the primary point. Build your thesis around the primary point. primary point is that when we suffer, that's what this entire passage has been about. When we suffer, and this is suffering for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, eventually we will be triumphant like Christ. When we suffer for his name, we always suffer unjustly. There's no just suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. It's always unjust because he is the just one. And there's victory in suffering because Jesus suffered for us. So last Sunday morning we started looking in detail at verse 19. Next slide, Jeff. <clears throat> and I gave you five, there are three to five views of the interpretation of this passage, and probably more, but these are the most common ones. And uh, we covered the first four, and we're going to look in detail at number five this morning, but just to read them, Christ in spirit these are theories. These are, uh, are interpretations of this passage, if you please. Christ in spirit, the Holy Spirit, preached through Noah in his days of repentance and redemption to unbelievers on the earth. But now are spirits in prison. They would be defined as people snared by the sin in Noah's day, or hell. And this was the view of Augustine, of Thomas Aquinas, it's the view of Wayne Grudem. It's also the view of John Piper, number two, and others. After Christ died, he went and preached to people in hell, Sheol, the grave, Old Testament, dead Old Testament saints, liberated by Christ between his death and resurrection. This has been the view of C.B. Cranfield, who, uh, Cranfield, who is, uh, has written a commentary on 1 Peter. Uh, and others. And I challenged you to look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 6, where again it says, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who were dead, that they may be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. And that's some of the application from that particular verse. Well, we're not there yet. We'll look at it when we get to 1 Peter 4. Number 3, after Christ died, he went and preached to people in hell, proclaiming to them that he had triumphed over them and that condemnation was final. This was the view of Martin Luther, although he says, I'm not exactly sure this is the, uh, the interpretation, but it's the one that I subscribe to, and it's also the view of Orthodox Lutheranism. Number four, after Christ died, he proclaimed release to people that had repented just before they died in the flood, offering them a second chance at salvation, leading them out of their imprisonment, what the Roman Catholics call purgatory, into heaven. And this was a, an interpretation that was 
originated by Cardinal Robert uh, Bellarmine, and it's the one that's followed by most Roman Catholics. So we spent time last Sunday building a case that why, why we don't think that any of these, these four, fit what Peter is talking about, especially number four. The Bible is very clear, excruciatingly clear for unbelievers that there's no second chance after we die. There are plenty of second chances on earth right now, but not after we die. So number five, after Christ died, after he arose, but before he ascended physically into heaven, he went to hell. Now the hell that's mentioned there, we talked several times, it's not Sheol, it's not Hades, and it's not Gehenna. It's a different word. The word is Tartarus. And it's a unique place for fallen angels, not for humans. He went there and he proclaimed triumph over the fallen angels who had sinned with women before the flood. This is Genesis 6. We looked at that uh, not in detail, but we read it last Sunday morning. I taught about it when I taught through Genesis a number of years ago, and it's online. You can go back and look at those notes. This is the view of uh, a commentary by Edward Selwyn and also by the Baptist Thomas Schreiner. So let's look at this one this morning, okay? After he died and arose from the dead, uh, before he ascended physically into heaven. So if you know, if you remember, Christ was three days in the tomb, resurrected, and then he was 40 days on earth. But it's an interesting thing that takes place that we're going to look at some of these this morning, okay? So what are some of the reasons that, that this view makes exege uh, exegetical sense within Peter's context? And that's what we're going to look at. The point is not that Christ descended into hell. We talked about the Apostles' Creed last Sunday morning. And as beautiful as it is, and the, the illustration teaches us a great deal about the Trinity, this is not found. The descent into hell is not found in any of the verses that we've read this morning. The point is he ascended in victory over the demonic powers. That's what verse 22 says. That's the point. Now, we owe you some definitions here, so let's look at what this particular uh, view subscribes to. Let's talk about the spirits in prison. And I mentioned to you last Sunday morning the word spirits is the word pneuma. It's only used of angels in the New Testament. And we talked about prison, which is the word meaning confined. It's not bars. It's confinement. It's a control. So the spirits in prison, the verbiage indicates the evil angels, the guys with the black hats. It doesn't reference humans. And it fits into interpretation without conjuring up a fanciful, unorthodox view. And that's important. Because often when we come to apocalyptic or we come to these mysteries that we see here we kind of reach up in the sky and we pull something down and says well this must be what he's talking about well, again it has to conform to all of the remainder of scripture not this just not particularly uh, 
this passage. So Peter also says, by whom he also went and preached to these spirits. So what does that mean? The word is went, not descend. So Tartarus, we don't know where it is. In fact, we don't know where, where Gehenna hell is. We, the assumption has been for centuries that it's in the center of the earth, but we're not told that. We're just told that uh, the rich man in Lazarus, that he went to hell, doesn't say the center of the earth. So anyway, we, we, sometimes we make things up without really having a clear understanding of what the scripture said. So he went and preached. He didn't descend. He traveled. The word went means he traveled. And of course, Jesus is spirit, so it didn't take him any time to get there, to go or to travel. What did he preach? Well, the word there is not the word that we get for the gospel. So, number one, we know that they're not humans, so he's not preaching the gospel. Angels cannot be redeemed. And we're going to look at some passages this morning, primarily in Matthew, that teach us about their marriage and their redemption. So he, the word used there is caruso. He proclaimed or he heralded a divine truth. The word that you see here, evangelismo, this is the verb, some, evangelisome means to preach the good news. And that's not the word that's used. It's the word that's most often used in the book of Acts about the apostles preaching the gospel. Paul uses it quite often in his epistles. Peter has used it, but not in this particular case. So he makes a choice for the word Caruso. It's not used by Peter, at least not in here. So by deduction, and sometimes we have to do that when we come to Scripture, Christ's proclamation was of another topic than evangelism. The, um, the identity of the, of the evil angels, of the fallen angels, and their doom was fixed when Lucifer was cast out of heaven. And this is eons ago. Jesus stated, I saw Lucifer, I saw Satan fall from heaven. So this isn't a reference to, or it fits in this particular passage, a reference to fallen angels. Um, next slide, if you would. Now here's the thing. The proclamation that Jesus makes apparently was not unique to the fallen angels of Genesis, of Genesis 6. So we know that there are several uh, several arrangements or certain, certain tribes, I could use the word tribes, but there are certain groups of fallen angels, some of which are in Tartarus, some of which are unleashed on this earth, and some of which will be unleashed in the book of Revelation. But this proclamation was made to all evil angels. Go with me to Jude chapter 6. Now we looked at this last Sunday morning, but this is important. 
What Jude says in verses 6 and 7, we'll read this in just a minute, but what Jude proclaims and teaches us in verse 6 and 7 of his little epistle is unique to the fallen angels, but also there is a similar comparison to Romans chapter 1. Sinful human being. So, Jude 6 and 7. And the angels who did, did not keep their proper domain. You and I have a proper domain. That is, we relate to our creator by maintaining that proper domain. And we'll explain that in just a moment. The angels, the good angels, the holy angels, maintain their respect and dignity and and revere the holiness of God, of the triune God, because they did maintain their proper domain. These didn't. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. Now the word abode is, Jude uses it, but the Apostle John uses it more than any of the other authors in the New Testament, not only in his gospel, but also in his epistles. Now, our understanding of the word abode is that the angels that fell left their home. That's what abode means. Jesus said, I go to make a place for you. I go to make an abode for you. I'm going to make a home for you. That where I am, you, those of you that are born again, can be also. These angels chose to leave that abode. In sinning against the triune God. Following Satan and Lucifer, sinning against the triune God. They left their own abode. Jude goes on to say, He has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day as like Sodom and Gomorrah. And the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set, as an, set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude specifically singles out the fallen angels. Peter specifically singles out the fallen angels. So it begs the question, notice what it says, giving themselves over to sexual immorality. So go with me to Matthew chapter 22. So it begs the question, if you know anything about your Bible, and you should, let's read what Jesus said about the angels. <coughs> so the Sadducees, verse 23, came to Jesus. They don't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in the resurrection. And by the way, just because they didn't believe in it, it didn't stop it from happening. You may be here this morning not believing in the physical res resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it matters not, it still happened. 
You may not believe in the veracity of the Word of God, but it matters not. It is still the truth of the living God. Whether we believe it or not doesn't change it. This is not my truth. This is the truth of the living Jesus Christ. So, they came to him. They don't believe in the resurrection, and so they tried to trick him. If a man dies, and he, they go, and he has no children, and he marries his wife, and then his brother has seven brothers and so forth, we'll get him this time. He can't answer this question. Well, look at verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the, the polemic defense of the gospel. Being a critic of a question. Here Jesus is critical of the Sadducees. Well, they'll never be saved if he was critical. That's not what it said. Jesus answered and said, you are mistaken. So what you said, you've given me some type of some um, uh, hypothetical situation that first of all will probably never happen. And secondly, it doesn't matter whether it happens or not, you are mistaken. Not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. Okay. The angels of God in heaven. The angels that Peter is talking about are not in heaven. They're in a place, Tartarus, separate from heaven. They left their proper domain and their abode. Christ is teaching of holy angels, the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So sure, angels in heaven are asexual. However, fallen angels, from what we learn from Genesis 6 and what we learn from 1 Peter chapter 3, apparently have the ability to, um, to seize men's bodies. Why did Jude write about Sodom and Gomorrah? What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? the evil nature of the wicked people that were there desired to have homosexual relations with Lot and then because of that they were also willing to do violence to Lot's daughters. Why does this occur? And what is Peter talking about in his particular Reference. So Jude is teaching about fallen angels who came down to earth having left their proper dominion. Now humans do this too. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We looked at this a few weeks ago. <clears throat> Verse 22. 
professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving themselves the penalty of the error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. And the first part, first thing that is mentioned about unrighteousness is sexual immorality. And there's a reason. It's precisely the point. What condemned the fallen angels is what condemns men and women of the fact that they have elevated the creature over the creator. And I've mentioned this over the past few weeks. The three great idols of this day are abortion, elevating the creature over the creator, the LGBTQ plus whatever alphabet soup. That's an idol. And the greatest idol of all is always self. So what Peter is writing what Jude has spoken about. The point is, they left their proper abode. They left the place that God made them for. Paul says, these that I have listed here left the place, their domain, their proper domain, and their abode. And so God gives them over. Old King James, great word, reprobate. We don't see it much in the modern translations because people are afraid of that word. But it's a great word. They came down to earth. They inhabited, co-inhabited, human form, male human form primarily, and made unions with the daughters of men. This is Genesis 6. We're not going to go back there this morning. We talked about that last summer. They took on human bodies and endeavored to corrupt the human stream. And they did this because they understood the prophecy made in Genesis chapter 3 about the incarnation. In fact, through the line of David, if we were to go to Matthew chapter 1 this morning, we would see that through the line of David, at one point, David's lineage had one remaining male heir. One. 
because the minions of the fallen angels had done their dead level best to eliminate that line. And God in his power sustained that particular individual. His name escapes me now, but that's part of the lineage in the Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament just is, it's, it's vitally important. And Josh was teaching this morning and said, you need to read your Old Testament. What we see revealed here goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Peter was familiar with it. Paul was familiar with it. John was familiar with it. Jude was familiar with it. You and I need to be familiar with it. Now, you know, don't need to know all the nuances about it. That's not what Peter is expecting. But he does want us to have this, this biblical theology, this ability to look over the Old Testament and bring it together into the New Testament so we understand the beauty and the victory of Jesus, albeit though he was, though he suffered, he still was victorious. So, we know that angels in heaven don't have sexual relations. As I said, they're asexual. Remember, now here's the thing. The reason that Paul and the reason that Jude mentions Sodom and Gomorrah, Paul mentions being filled with all unrighteousness, and the first one he mentions is sexual immorality. If you don't remember anything I say this morning, this last bullet up here, you need to remember. It is always true that in demonic activity, whether Satan worship, whether the occult, or the involvement in demonism of any form. Well, preacher, I don't do that. And I, you know, people don't do that. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Now, they may not be aware of it, but yes, they do. It always involves perverted and corrupted sex. Always. Beginning after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, through the remainder of the book of Genesis, there is one corrupt and perverted sexual activity after another. Especially when you come to Genesis chapter 6. The world was a very different place then, the antediluvian world. We'll talk about that when we come to baptism, which we probably won't get to this morning. Very different. Doesn't look like it does today. And so this all changed with the flood. Demonic activity from adultery. David succumbed to that. Well, that's sin. Well, where do you think sin comes from? We conjure sin up in our mind? No. From adultery? You fill in the blank here. This is just some examples. Sexual abuse? 
incest, all these things. A lot of part of the book of Genesis. And pornography. Always, always, always. Why did you mention Sodom and Gomorrah? Because of this very thing. Why did Paul mention that it was given over to, um, to sexual immorality? Because of this very thing. Why is Peter writing that Jesus went to uh, Tartarus and proclaimed his victory over them? Why? Because of this very thing. Men and women that leave their proper domain And it, happened, it happens a lot more frequently than you could ever imagine. Next slide. Christ preached or he heralded his triumph. In ancient times, when Peter wrote this particular passage, <coughs> heralds would travel as agents of the rulers. And they would herald their announcements. They would proclaim announcements from the rulers. Often, these heralds would precede generals and kings and the parades. Parades aren't unique to us. Parades have been going on for thousands of years. Parades celebrating military triumphs. They would announce victories won in battle. This is especially true of the word triumph that uh, Paul uses in Romans chapter 8. Because this, and John uses also in the book of Revelation because that's what Jesus did. He paraded himself over, he doesn't need to parade himself over fallen human beings, but he did do it over fallen angels. And there are lots of scriptures that we're not going to look, look at here. Announcing victory, running back battle, Christ proclaimed victory to Satan and his minions by announcing his victory over sin. And these are the ones that are seen there. His victory over sin, his victory over death, his victory over hell, his victory over demons, and his victory over Satan. Ephesians 6 tells us, Paul wrote again, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Why? Did you ever use the, the, the term cray-cray, so-and-so is cray-cray? How many of you used it? Don't raise your hand, but you know what I'm talking about? Nod your head like this. Well, so-and-so is cray-cray. You probably think the pre preacher is cray-cray this morning. So. That cray-cray. Why do we think that way? Because we know that sin corrupts minds. We know that. Now, we deny it. But we know that we, we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. That's what, go back now to 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 22. Who has gone into heaven. He went and preached, then went into heaven. Didn't stay there. Didn't need to stay there. He's at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Not against flesh and blood, Paul said, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of his darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, okay? 
All of that, the latter part of that has to do with fallen angels, but a lot of this does have to do with what takes place on earth. When Hamas, a couple of weeks ago, went into Israel, and it's not unique to them. Don't we ever think that it's unique that the atrocities that they committed, oh, that's horrible, and they are. They are horrible. But it's not unique. It's happened countless thousands of times through church history, through history. Why? Because they have debased, debased minds and they have left their proper domain. Paul clearly uh, says that the demonic hierarchy is active, and it is, and freely conducting its evil work in the world. Some are unbound spirits, for example, Satan. He's unbound. But some are constrained, and that's what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 3. These are the demons that Christ went to announce his triumph. So Christ's message to angels and authorities was a declaration of his triumph and most probably occurred after his resurrection and before his physical ascension. Now, I'm going to finish this this morning. We've got maybe one or two things that are going on. Next slide. We think that because when Jesus resurrected, do you remember he, Mary Magdalene went to the garden? where he was buried. And John does such a beautiful, he uses such a beautiful phrase. Jesus speaks to Mary and he calls her by name, Mary. And John says, Mary supposed that he was the gardener. He was the one that was taking care of the tombs. He was the one that was taking care of the gardens. This was where the wealthy were buried. So you know they had the wherewithal to take care of the plants and the pathways and so forth. And so she said, and apparently the vis visage of Jesus had changed so much from his crucifixion to uh, after his resurrection that she didn't recognize him. She said, sir, they have taken away the body of my Lord, and I don't know where he is. And Jesus spoke to her and called her my name, Mary. And she recognized him. And she went to hug him. And what did Jesus say? Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. There was something, something in the holiness of the resurrected Jesus that until he had made perhaps this journey to Tartarus and then been ascended back to spiritually ascended. Okay? He's spirit form. He has a resurrected body like you and I that, that know the Lord Jesus as Savior. We will have that body when we move from this life into the life that is to come.
something unique about it. We don't know a great deal about it. Don't need to know. But there was something unique about it, and he says, don't touch me. Now, he wasn't being critical. He was just saying, listen, I still have some work to do before my fall. And so we think that all of this occurred prior to his physical ascension in Acts chapter 1. So let's summarize number 5. We'll close out this out this morning. Christ Jesus, by means of the Holy Spirit, went to a place reserved for the devil and his angels to proclaim triumph over their rebel activity. We have no reason to doubt that Satan wasn't there. Now, he's not bound, but he was perhaps there. And again, that's conjecture. Scripture doesn't tell us that, but we have no reason to doubt that he wasn't there. To proclaim triumph over their rebel activity and their attempts to prohibit his birth and subsequent crucifixion for humanity's sin. Now, they didn't understand a great deal of what was taking place, but they knew that if, the, if God the Son became incarnate, something significant and powerful was going to happen. So remember, this passage teaches us that the triune God acts easily within his creation to accomplish his sovereign will. Doesn't need our permission, doesn't need Satan's permission, doesn't need fallen angels, doesn't need holy angels. This is, for the lack of a better term, this is all second nature to the, to the triune God. He's not sweating to get this done. So, in looking at these, these five, this is the one that perhaps fits. Now, Lots of good arguments for number one, as well as for number five. And R.C. Sproul, who in his commentary does subscribe to number one, but he says this. He said, I'm not prepared to say that this is exactly what Peter meant. But the ambiguity of the language here in this text does not require us to come to the conclusion that it must refer to some type of post-resurrection preaching mission in hell to angels or to dead people. That's what he said. He says, it may have its primary reference to the earthly ministry of Jesus in some fashion. Now, he readily admits, there's a long paragraph that he goes into. I didn't put that up here, but he says, this is a text about which I am open to correction and reproof. How do you approach the Bible? What we know to be fact and truth, we can be dogmatic about. But when we come to things like this, and he's a smart man. He says, this is a text about which I'm open to correction and reproof. That's very similar to what Martin Luther said 500 years ago. He says, and I will be quick to ask the apostle when I see him in glory what he meant by these very enigmatic words, these mysterious, these, these words that we have trouble getting our minds around. Now, Peter doesn't finish there. So verse 19 is just the beginning of some more 
questions that arise about baptism. And so we'll begin to look at that next Sunday morning, and hopefully we'll close that out and then close this particular chapter out. I will say this again. This is about you, and it's about me. Not directly, perhaps, but it teaches us about our suffering for righteousness' sake. So have you suffered? For righteousness' sake, we, we live in a very supposed Christian area. Supposed, I say. Because we don't know everything that goes on. We don't know everything that goes on in the hearts and lives of people. But we do know that Christ suffered for us once for all so that we might be brought to back to our proper domain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the challenges of this particular passage. And so we do ask, Lord, that you would, by the Spirit of God, open our hearts and minds to what we are learning this morning. The thing that we cannot do is just discount it altogether. It is there for our maturation. It is there to make us mature in the faith. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of this service this morning, perhaps in this congregation, or perhaps over the Internet, Lord Jesus, there are those that uh, don't know you as Savior. I understand that looking at these, looking at this passage and talking about fallen angels, talking about fallen humans, is meant to bring conviction. So my prayer is that it would do so. I also pray that it would bring correction and that it would bring comfort to our hearts and our souls. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. <clears throat> As we prepare to sing a closing hymn this morning I just want to remind you that if you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior this same Savior that went and proclaimed victory also will one day at the great white throne judgment if you don't know him as Savior he will proclaim victory over you as well we don't want that I said last Sunday morning I beseech you that you not be in that group that says, Lord, did we not cast out demons and do all this stuff? And he says, depart, I never knew you. We want you, he wants you to be part and parcel of his church, his body, being born again. But we can't save you, but with an open Bible, we can lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can leave here this morning with that assurance that though you are a great sinner, Christ is a far greater Savior. So we give you opportunity to respond today or maybe at the end of the service if you want to chat with me, that's fine as well. As a child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. Maybe you are a believer. We trust that you are. You need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We encourage you to make that 
decision today. Perhaps you need to join by statement of faith or transfer a letter. We encourage you likewise to do that this day. As a child of God, yes, this was written to you for our admonition, for our understanding of the greatness of the Savior. We're going to cover that next Sunday morning. So what number are we going to sing, Brother Vance? 411. 411. If the Lord's spoken to you, won't you come as we stand and sing?